Are you amazed when people drive their vehicles for over 250,000 miles? How often should you change your engine oil? What techniques can improve your mileage? Would an expensive fuel injection cleaning improve your engine performance? This is Car Guy with Brett Beechler of Beechler's Vehicle Care and Repair. Find out how to substantially reduce your cost per mile and extend the longevity of your vehicles. Welcome to Car Guy with Brett Beechler on PeoriaLife.com. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us today again on the Car Guy with uh, Brett Beechler. How are you doing, Brett? Fantastic, Craig. How about yourself? Doing great. Uh, we're going to talk today about something that's very important to th- uh, think about before you take a trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, summertime, of course, is upon us. It's very hot out today. It's it is be, a little bit toasty. going to be 97, I think, something like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, of course, during the summertime, travel. Yes, they, they do. Vacations, sometimes short vacations, sometimes long vacations. Yes. Um, our daughter lives in Nashville, Tennessee area. And you, so sometimes, you know that road well, don't you? We do. It's a long drive. Good drive, but it's a mm-hmm. long drive. So uh, during the summer, uh, many tr- people travel, so it's important that they do some things before they start traveling. Right? Absolutely. So give us uh, some thoughts on what are some good things to do before you start off on a, a trip. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of run through all the, the highlights to look for on a vehicle. And, and, the, and the purpose of this is enabling folks to be able to do a lot of these things themselves if they so wish. Um, you know, and if people prefer not to do it themselves, we offer and many reputable shops actually offer a good tree, uh, pre-trip inspection on vehicles where an ASE technician actually road tests a car um, our technician actually goes and it's, removes wheels, inspects brakes. They inspect variants on things such as tie rod ends and ball joints, which are steering and suspension components. Um, pretty heavy duty inspection underneath the hood. Uh, basically trying to predict anything that could possibly go wrong with the vehicle. And then also doing a you know maintenance review, see where their factory specified maintenance is at on the car. So if you don't want to do any of these items on the list, most reputable shops offer them, typically anywhere between seventy to a hundred dollars on a good inspection expect to pay. So, anyway, I'll break all this down, kind of go through tires and uh, steering system and the oil and the air conditioning and the transmission operation. This may end up being a two-part show, but uh, there's a lot of information to cover. But I, th- I think it's pretty critical because one of the things I know when I used to travel when I was younger and I wasn't so savvy about cars is I always had a concern in the back of my head about breaking down on a trip and what I would do and where I would go and who I would contact. And of course, this was all before cell phones, not to date myself. Um, But I did like to travel. I enjoyed traveling when I was younger. But there's always that concern in the back of my head. And I think any savvy individual anymore has a, a little bit of concern in the back of their head. Now, maybe less so because cars have become more reliable, let's face it. Um, and we enjoy the, you know, the benefits of being, having more reliable vehicles, you know, back in the day in the seventies, eighties, they weren't quite as reliable as they are now, of course, as you and I know, Greg. It's kind of interesting. Uh, this topic intersects with another topic that we did a while ago, which is important things to have in your car. Mm-hmm. And I do talk about a few items actually I've expounded upon that list a little bit and you'll find it interesting. Mm-hmm. And that may be show number two. Mm -hmm. So let's start off with the cooling system. So a lot of people get confused between the cooling system and the cooling system for you and I inside the car. Completely different. There's a cooling system that is designed to help keep the engine cool. So a cooling system for the engine. Yes. Cooling system for the people. Yes. Two different things. Yes. Two different things. So 
the radiator. Let's start with the job of the radiator. Its job is to cool the fluid that comes from the engine. And there's hundreds and hundreds of tiny little fins that help dissipate the heat from that coolant. Okay. Very critical that the radiator is taken care of uh, because it's one of the main ingredients of the cooling system. Um, how they break down is when the cooling passages, these tiny little vents inside the radiator, actually become restricted um, with coolant that should not be in there. Um, that's oftentimes how we see radiators fail. Uh, there are other times because of salt and cor corrosion and grime and things like that in, in our society that we see that can all actually cause some corrosion on the radiator that'll cause it to leak. It doesn't happen often, but we've seen it. So that, that leads me to a question. When yep. you say radiators fail, how do they fail? Uh, how do you know that your radiator is failing? Is it just your engine overheats? That's the sign or leaking or Yeah, what? That's, that's a great question. Um, overheating is the ultimate consequence of a radiator failing. And I might add a little side note. Um, a lot of people still come in to this day and say, can't you repair the radiator? Here's the scientific reason behind why we can't repair radiators. Radiators back in the day used to be all aluminum. The tank, the fins, everything was aluminum. Well, the government came in and they, they want to lighten vehicles to help cafe standards, the miles per gallon that cars get. Well, they looked at every aspect of the car, how they can lighten the load. And one of the things that they do is they actually have made radiators into plastic tanks and aluminum fins to help cool the engine. Well, the problem is the way we used to repair radiators is we welded the radiators can't weld plastic. Um, it's not possible. It's a pressurized system. Once it develops a leak at the seam, which is typically the most common place you see it on a radiator, um, it's all over. It's time to extract the old part and put a new part in. So to answer, does that answer your question? Okay, good. So that's mainly where you see leaks. Um, how do they plug? Well, lack of coolant flushes. That's probably the most common items. You know, For example, on GM vehicles, they're recommendation on most of their vehicles anymore is five years, 150,000 miles, whichever comes first, period. It's very inexpensive insurance to go through that process to go, you know what, I'm going to get a coolant flush rather than a six or $800 radiator or an $800 heater core inside the dashboard, which the heater core is basically like a miniature radiator that helps produce heat inside the car. Obviously it doesn't serve a purpose in the summertime or the summertime travel, and I'll get to that unless you break down or you start overheating. Um, but the heater core is like a tiny little radiator. Literally, it's about the size of two of my hands. A pretty small device that helps keep heat inside the car. And that can fail too. That can fail too. You don't see as many failures on heater cores anymore. It used to be almost on a weekly basis we were seeing heater cores fail. Um, part of it was from the antifreeze. Part of it was just the makeup and, and the, the quality of their make. So, And that's a real problem when that fails, right? Yeah, it's pretty much a real problem when that fails. And you got to take the old dashboard off. Yeah. And, and most that, cars, you got to take dashboards off. That's a so mess. It gets to be a little bit of a mess. So one of the misnomers out there is that the cooling system, coolant flushes, are a wintertime only type service. And that is absolutely the farthest, farthest thing from the truth anymore. That's when people think about it. That's when people think about it, of course. You know, because we, we have actually... I think we've done a pretty good job at educating our customers that, you know, you go off based off of your, your mileage or whatever requirement you have in your owner's manual. Um, we don't have too many of the certain generations that come in our door the first time it hits 27 degrees out and says, can you check my antifreeze and, you know, the temperature protection on it? Um, any good shop is presenting you that information at every time you get the oil changed. 
Um, we do that. There's a lot of good shops around here that do that. So just be aware of that, that you just don't need to do this as a wintertime service anymore. It's not a wintertime service. We'll have the five years come up many times with our customers in the middle of the summer and we say, cool and flush. They say, do it. Okay, let's take care of it. Um, I'm going to keep the car 250,000 miles. So that's a that's an interesting bullet point is it is not a winter service like people think it is. Okay. All right. So part a little part of the cooling systems I'll talk about is uh, the belts and the hoses, something that you can do yourself. So one of the things you want to do, and this is when the engine's cold, of course, is actually squeeze the hoses at the entrance and the exit of the radiator itself, really? mainly the upper hose. If when you squeeze it and you start seeing cracks in that hose, it's time to replace it. Okay. And then it goes down typically into what they call a thermostat housing. You squeeze it down there too. Okay. Or if you see the hole, the hose is bulged, um, it's time to change the hose. I tell you that stuff, but I also got to tell you, you don't see this stuff happening on vehicles like you used to. It was almost a, a yearly thing. You were replacing hoses on cars. Really? And you, you may remember that, Greg, but literally I can't remember the last time we replaced an upper radiator hose or a lower radiator hose. They're made with such good quality anymore. You just don't see that happening. Does it happen? Yes, it, it, it happens. Um, but not nearly as much as you used to. We used to be open on Sundays because of that, because cars would break down and the common failure was radiator hoses, but they just don't fail anymore. So we were able to close on Sundays. So our guys were happy about that. <laughs> so um, so that's a, that's a test you can do. The other one is when you grab the, the radiator hoses and if you do, do a little torque job on them and you try to turn them just a little bit, don't try to overturn them. And, you know, a guy is super muscular, don't try to overturn them. But if they actually turn the hoses, then there's an issue. So either a, a clamp needs to be replaced or secured or resecured or tightened or the hose itself might be starting to fail. So just another little self-test. Okay, so let's move on to the belts. All right, so a little bit of overzealousy that occurs in our industry where people say to replace belts on a little aggressive basis. So when belts are failing, one of the common figures that we, um, our industry, not we beachlers, but our industry has determined that if you have six cracks per inch, so literally look at your serpentine belt. Most cars are equipped with only one belt anymore, not the three or four that they used to have. Um, but if you look at that serpentine belt and there, you count in one inch, six cracks, it's time to replace the belt. Okay. But the interesting thing is there's different depths to those cracks, if that makes any sense. Um, you'd almost have to see a belt, but if those that depth of that crack goes down to the, the baseline of the belt, it's definitely time. But you can also see hairline cracks, which the belt's not going to break tomorrow. We've explained to customers, you got hairline cracks. Let's keep an eye on it. We'll check it at the next oil, oil change interval. So that's a good self-determination that you can inspect belts. And the other one you want to uh, look at is the tension of the belt because it, it is not an uncommon thing to see what they call a belt tensioner that fails. It's this big spring-loaded device that keeps that one big belt that fails. I don't know if you remember, Greg, in the olden days, um, way back when, but when you had those three or four belts, you actually had to take tools, pull the pulley up tight, get the belt secured, secure the, the bolt that goes into the pulley, and then make sure the belt's tight. And when we used to replace belts like that on vehicles, it was very common to say to the Mr. and Mrs. customer, come on back in a week or so. Once the belts have kind of stretched out into place, we got to retighten the belt. Well, the new cars, they have what they call belt tensioners. So we don't have to do that anymore for the most part on cars. 
But the catch is these tensioners can wear out over time because they're they're flexing every time the engine accelerates and, and things like that occur on the car. So um, those can wear out, but if the belt tensioner breaks, guess what? You're dead in the water because the belt falls off and the belt typically drives air conditioning, alternator, which keeps the electricity going in the car, the power steering pump. Of course, when you, I don't know if you ever had a car, modern day car fail with no power steering, it's really, really hard to turn. You're done. You're, you're, it's really hard to turn. Um, and a lot of belts, um, propel the, the water pump too. Um, so if that belt system fails, you are literally calling the tow truck and getting the car hauled in on a, on a back of a tow truck, because that's just the way it is. So, so in other words, if you're going down the highway and that mm-hmm. belt breaks, mm-hmm. you're going 65 miles an hour, mm-hmm. you're in trouble, right? <laughs> well, you're in trouble. You still can, the nice thing about driving on a highway, you know, at higher speeds, you, you have control of driving. You can still manhandle it or woman handle it, whatever you want to call it over to the side of the road. It's not that bad, but it's when you get into slower turns where it's going to be, it's going to be much harder to turn. Um, so, but you definitely, once that belt breaks or it is removed because of the tensioner breaking itself, it's, it's going to be all she wrote. And it's just a matter of time because what happens, here's the science behind what happens when a belt breaks and the alternator stops turning and the water pump stops turning, the system immediately goes to the, the battery for its electricity. So if you got radio on and, you know, other devices on and all your spark plugs require electricity to provide fire inside your, your cylinders, um, that electrical source needs to go to the battery. And it's just a matter of time before that battery gets drained because the battery is d- designed to start the car and that's essentially it. So, um, Plus you've if, gotta, the, if the water pump's not going, you the water, that's a, the other really bad part. If the water pump's not going, it's like your heart stopping and not flowing blood through your body. Water pump does the exact same thing, flowing coolant through all the jackets of the engine, the radiator, you know, through the thermostat housing into the heater core, um, once that stops flowing, it's it's really not a good thing. It's so you gotta get a shutdown. If that were to happen, what what would signal you that this has happened? Is there something? Obviously, your lights will start popping on mm-hmm. uh, your dashboard lights, mm-hmm. but there's not a light that says your belt broke. It's just all these other symptomatic things. Yes, that that would occur. In in theory, you should have a battery light that illuminates. Okay, mm-hmm. you should very quickly have your your coolant overheat light, whatever it's whatever it's described as in your owner's manual, you should have a, at least two, if not three, lights illuminating on your dashboard. Plus, you couldn't steer the car. Yeah, <laughs> you're well, gonna have trouble steering the car. You're gonna have a little trouble steering the car. It'll it'll get stiff. So that's probably gonna be your most immediate thing that happens on it. So um, that's that's why you want to pay attention to those things. And I, I'm explaining all these things to people. And there's going to be a number of people out in our society that say, I don't want to deal with any of this stuff. I want my guy to do it, my technician to do it. I'm just trying to help people that if if they want to look out for certain things and be a little bit more self-sustainable, these are the things we're watching, okay, on cars that the, the average lay person can look for. So does that kind of explain things on belts? Yes. Okay. So we can jump to the thermostat. So the thermostat, there's really not much you can do with that. Um, anymore, what it used to happen with thermostats, and let me explain what a thermostat does. So and many people don't know this. A thermostat actually opens and closes. Okay. So when you're in the winter time and that, that coolant that is running around the engine, when you first start your car, they want that coolant, the engineers of that car want that coolant up to temperature as fast as they possibly can. So the thermostat's actually designed to keep closed at that time. 
and it doesn't bring in that cool um, antifreeze from the radiator yet. Okay. It also, when the antifreeze is cold like that, it, the engine doesn't run as efficient. Okay. So once the engine comes up to temperature, the thermostat is then directed to open to bring in that cool coolant from the radiator itself, and that's what keeps the engine cool. What used to happen in cars is thermostats would stay in the stuck closed position, okay? And then you'd be in a problem because it's not dragging in, it's not drawing in that cool uh, antifreeze from the radiator to keep the engine cool, and the engine overheats, okay? Now, can't you have also have them stick in the open position so the car, car won't warm up like it's supposed to? Exactly. That's typically what we see anymore on engines. We don't see very many thermostats at all stay in the stuck closed position. They've actually redesigned them to where when they break, they go in the stuck open position, which is much less dangerous. However, it does affect your your the economy of your engine, believe it or not. The performance. Yep, exactly. So you and, and that and the other performance it affects is in the wintertime, if you have a stuck open thermostat, that heat that comes off the heater core, it doesn't work quite as well. It literally, the, the degrees of ambient temperature coming out of the vents is much lower and people are typically not satisfied with the heat that's produced coming out of their car. So, so in the wintertime, if you're, if a car is not producing the heat in the cabin mm -hmm. that you want, mm -hmm. one of the possible problems is the thermostat is broken, stuck Correct. open. Correct. And the nice thing about cars today is the check engine light is actually tied into engine coolant temperature. Okay. So if you have a below normal engine coolant temperature, you'll have a, uh, a light that comes on a check engine light and it'll tell you, Hey, you've got a below normal operating coolant temperature and we can extract codes from those and those things can be corrected. So you should know beyond the heat that's coming out of your vents, you should know that something else is occurring with the check engine light. So good little back of mind information. Okay. Uh, next water pump, um, water pumps do break. It does happen. They go round and round thousands and thousands and thousands of, time, of times. There are bearings inside there that can break. Um, you know, the water pump's usually connected to either the pulley system on the belt, or there are what they call timing belt-driven water pumps that are actually inside the engine. And most water pumps are designed, they have what they call weep holes, okay? When the seals inside the water pump start failing, you'll see antifreeze coming out of the weep holes, okay? So that's an indicator. If you if you're if you want to get underneath your car and look at the water pump, if it's an exposed water pump and non-timing belt-driven water pump, you can inspect the weep hole. And we've had water pumps that have had stains on the weep hole. Those are the ones that are at the beginning stages of failing, and that we always explain to customers: look, you don't have to do it now, but I just want to present you the evidence that your water pump has bled some antifreeze out at some time or another, and probably in the beginning stages of starting to fail. You know, you can either do it now or do it in the future, whatever you want. We always kind of lay that stuff out for customers. Or pay me later. Exactly. That's exactly what it boils down to. So, you know, just, just count on the fact that water pumps do break over time. Okay. A good technician can detect a failing water pump. Okay. Cooling fans. Uh, most of them were belt driven back in the olden days. Many of them now are electric. So the way you can test for this is start your car up, um, let it idle outside, Within 10 minutes, you should hear a cooling fan engage. If you don't hear that cooling fan engage, you've got an issue. And cooling fans are designed to draw cool air across a radiator when you're at idle in city traffic, things like that. Once you're up to speed on the highway, it'll turn off. It's allowing that forced air coming through the, the front of the radiator to keep the, the uh, coolant cool. 
That okay. change from belt-driven to electric was just one more change to improve performance, right? Absolutely. That's that's the whole purpose for it. It is, it is you know, and I hear people complain about the cars nowadays, and I, I'll take today's car over yesterday's car any day. You know, a lot of people get into the older cars. I don't, but that's just the thing. And they are easier to work on. I'll give them that. So, okay, tires. So let's hit tires. Um, correct, correct pressure in all five tires. You say five tires. Hey, what do you mean five tires? Don't forget you have a spare tire. It's one of the most neglected tires out there, um, on a vehicle. And, you know, we've had many people that have had flat spare tires that come in our door and we say, oops, if you would have had a, you know, a flat on your car, it would have been all she wrote and you'd been calling the tow truck company. Okay. Correct tire pressures on the placard of the driver's door jam. Okay. Most vehicles, some it's in the trunk. Some it's in the um, glove compartment, but most of them anymore you'll find on the driver's uh, door jam. Um, and it'll tell you exactly what the tires need and in, inside the pressures. Okay. Here's an interesting fact. Um, tire pressure increases one pound for every 10 degrees of temperature on average. Okay. So if the last time you measured your tires, it was 20 degrees out and now it's 70 degrees out, they in theory should be five pounds higher. Okay. Makes sense. Same thing works in reverse, right? Same thing works in reverse. Absolutely. So it could be, uh, you know, 45 degrees from your January pressure. So uh, TPMS, do, the tire pressure monitor system does not always indicate if a tire pressure is high. It'll always indicate if it's low, but some of them are designed that they don't tell you if it's high. So you, you always want to measure your pressure. Okay. And one little notation, toss the pencil style tire pressure gauge out and get the digital style. Really? More accurate, yes. Um, they found that much more accurate in, in, in our world. Mm. Okay. Now, now, what are the negative aspects of having too high uh, air pressure in your tires? What's the big um, deal? There's a couple of different aspects. A little bit rougher ride on you. The reason why they set these tire pressures the way they do is the engineers say this is the ideal ride and handling tire pressure for the car. Okay. So, the secondary thing is it actually wears your tire... You know, if you run a tire that's 10, 15 pounds over, the tire is not going to wear you the way you want it to, nice and even. You'll actually have a, a the inside part of the tire that's overinflated. Um, it's kind of hard to describe. Um, that will wear faster than the outside of the tire. So yeah. it won't wear evenly, if that makes sense, if you're consistently running higher, much higher pressures on the tires. But the big thing is it just won't ride like you want it to. It'll be a stiffer ride on the car. Yeah. So the tires are being a mini suspension system. So. Uh, tire tread depth. Okay. So this is, this is kind of one of those areas that once people wrap their head around the numbers, um, they're much more easy to explain and, and for people to follow your logic. 330 seconds is the number we're looking at. That's a legal limit. Now they've increased it from 230 seconds. What is it typically for a brand new tire? Brand new tire has 10 to 11, 30 seconds. Unless you're running big truck tires, those things have 14, 15, 30 seconds of tread. When you say truck tire, are you talking about pickup truck or semi truck or uh, pickup truck? Yeah, pickup truck. So, um, but typically, what you're looking at brand new is ten to eleven thirty seconds. Okay, but three thirty seconds is a bare minimum we're looking at. I here's an anecdotal deal. I was traveling one time in a heavy rainstorm. I knew I had kind of marginal tires. I had four thirty seconds of tread on them. I was going seventy five up the interstate in Michigan. Seventy five. So yeah, well the speed limit was seventy. So. Um, <laughs> And I hit a patch of heavy, heavy rain, and I literally moved from one lane to the other. So that's my 
experiential evidence to tell folks that, hey, three to four thirty seconds is really the range we're looking at with tires. You can drive around with three thirty seconds. You can drive around with two thirty seconds. It's still okay until you hit the the times when things can go wrong, like heavy rainstorms or heavy snowstorms, things like that. You're just not going to perform like you want to. Your car is not going to. Now, what about if you have nice weather, no problem. You had mm-hmm. two thirty seconds, and something happened. A dog runs out in front of you, or a kid, or something, and you mm-hmm. got to slam on the brakes. Does it affect your braking capability? Yeah, actually, it doesn't affect it quite as much um, because you still got drive pavement with that tread. It doesn't affect it like you think it would. Um, it's more for gaining traction in ice, snow, rain. That's what it's all about. That that tread depth. Now, cars going to ride better once you get new tires. That's the interesting part. I always love talking to customers after they, after they get new tires, and they're like, "Oh, my car rides so much better." I'm like, "Yeah, I know. I knew that would happen." It's like getting new running shoes. That's exactly right. It's <laughs> like getting new running shoes. So, a uh, good little measurement for you um, on a penny. You plug the penny into the in the tread depth of the tire. The top of Abraham Lincoln's head is about three thirty seconds. Hmm. So if you want to measure yourself, but we have tread depth measurement gauges that tell in millimeters and in thirty seconds of an inch. Now, at so, what point do the wear bars usually show up? Uh, typically, about two to three thirty seconds. You see the wear bars becoming. You'll see the wear bars when it gets down to six thirty seconds, seven thirty seconds. Um, but they don't become even with the tread until about two to three thirty seconds. Typically, I'm also about three thirty seconds. So, and. It, do people know what a wear bar is? I, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say there's there's a little bar that runs across the the perpendicular to the tread of your tire, and it's set way down inside the tire. And there's typically one for. I would say there's in a tire. There's probably eight wear bars that you can see around the entire tire. Oh, there's that many. I yeah, there's know. quite a few wear bars inside of tires. So that's the manufacturer telling the person driving the car that, hey, this is bare minimum you need to replace your tires and that's i think that's set by the government to be honest with you okay Um, one of the things i always encourage people to do is turn the front tires and inspect the entire tire from inside tread to outside tread i can't tell you how many times people have had suspension or steering problems you know the outside of the tire looks great you turn the tire and there's steel cords sticking on the inside of the tire Um, so always turn the tire and look at the entire tire from inside tread to outside tread always a good idea if you're doing self-inspection here Okay. One notation on tires. I know this sounds like I'm plugging good price tires, you know, good quality tires, but I'm a guy that looks at cost per mile and everything that we do. I mean, I wrote a book about it. I do presentations to young kids about how expensive cars are. And I look at cost per mile, but if you're going to go out and buy a 30,000 mile tire for, you know, $20 less per tire to save yourself 80 bucks. Great. But you turn back around, and if you buy a good quality tire for sixty thousand for twenty dollars, I look at the cost per mile. You got to calculate the cost per mile because out the door pricing is cute, but I don't want to be replacing tires every two years. Does that go by brand? Are there just certain brands that are better, or how does that work? No, it's interesting because uh, a lot of the big brands out there actually have inexpensive tires to suit that part of the market where people want the cheapest tires possible. So just because you're buying, for an example, a Michelin tire doesn't mean it's a top quality tire out there, but they've got their entry level tires out there to suit the people's desires and wants. So it, it, I mean, you will see that in tires. So don't think just because it's a Michelin or a Bridgestone that, hey man, this is the best tire out there. It's, It's typically not always the case. And trust me, Michelin makes some really, really good tires. We sell them, but we don't sell them often because they're, they're pretty expensive tires. 
What do they do to move a tire from a 60,000 mile tire to a 30,000 mile tire? Is it a different type of rubber? It's a different or? type of rubber, uh, different tread depth you're getting. You're not getting the 10 or 11, 30 seconds. Um, and it's really the quality of the rubber that does it. That's, that's essentially what everything boils down to is the quality of the tire. It's no different than running shoes. I mean, same thing. Same thing goes on the running shoe world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've only got a a little bit of time left. I thought maybe you might want to hit this pre-inspection, pre-trip inspection Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My thought there, I've come from a real estate background and what I used to tell people, people used to ask me, should I list my house myself? Should I sell my house myself or should I list it with a realtor? Because obviously with a realtor, it costs money. And my response was always, well, it depends if you have the three T's. And they say, what's the three T's? Three T's are the time, the tools, and the talent. Yes. It's, it applies to anything. It applies to anything. Uh, remodeling your kitchen, uh, doing work on your car, yes. selling your house, whatever. You got to have those three. If you've got those three, if you honestly have the time yes. and the tools and the talent, then do it yourself. Yes. Yes. Why pay somebody else to do it? But if you don't have one of those three T's and you try to do it yourself, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to be happy with the result. Exactly. And I know this is a cliched statement, but we sell peace of mind. And that's really what it boils down to. And most reputable shops sell peace of mind, knowing exactly what it takes to maintain a car for a long period of time. So so I think you ought to have a, a new addition to your book and include the three T's. You have my, three T's. You okay. have my permission okay. to do Bring that. Bring that in the revised version of it. Yes. <laughs> well, it looks like we've done it again. We've spent a nice half hour talking about uh, some good tips on driving in the summertime. So, mm-hmm. Brett, thanks for your thoughts. You're welcome. And uh, thank you, everybody out there in uh, radio land or internet land for joining us on The Car Guy, PeoriaLife.com. We'll see you next week. PeoriaLife.com.